You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. The story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is probably, as maybe we alluded to this morning, one of the best known of the children's Bible stories. And all boys and girls know it from their earliest days. They're taught it maybe in Sunday school or they have some children's Bible or book at home and they know about the story of Zacchaeus, about the wee man who wanted to see Jesus but because he was so small and he couldn't see him, he ran ahead of Jesus, he climbed a sycamore tree and much to his surprise, Jesus stopped, looked up and invited himself to a meal at Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus arrived with his friends and the upshot of the whole occasion was that Zacchaeus... uh, well, he, he decided that he needed to change his ways and in the child's phrase, he probably turned from being a bad man to being a good man. And that's really the story of Zacchaeus's encounter with Jesus as a child would understand it. But this evening for a few minutes, I would like us to look at this particular story through what, what we might call the eyes of adulthood because there are surely many deeper truths that we can understand than just the the story that we can read on the surface as we read it through even to the boys or girls. There are many questions we could ask. Uh, First of all, why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? Was it out of curiosity because of the reputation that Jesus had, or was it out of personal concern? Did life have no meaning for Zacchaeus? That Zacchaeus wanted to possibly use the opportunity of speaking to Jesus in order that in some way his life might be turned round. I wonder what his inner feelings would have been when Jesus suddenly announced that he was going to come to his house. Did he give any consideration to what other people would have been thinking? about this tax collector inviting this itinerant preacher to his home? And was he not concerned about what Jesus might say to him about the sinful lifestyle that he'd been living? These are all sorts of questions that we could ask ourselves this evening. But to quote again from Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 and 16, we read that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable and for teaching, reproof, and correction. And while all Scripture is profitable for teaching, some stories are included in order that we might follow the example of those who are its main characters, and other stories are included that we might follow, uh, not follow the example, but take a warning from the lifestyles that they live. And I think it would be true to say that as far as the case is concerned, we can have both an example to follow in the changed lifestyle that he had and a warning to avoid in the lifestyle that he was currently living at the time when he climbed the sycamore tree. And so this evening for a few minutes, I want us to look at three things associated with Zacchaeus. And the first one is Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. Zacchaeus, as we're aware, was a tax collector, and the Bible tells us that he was a chief tax collector. What basically that meant was that he was, uh, if you want to call it, the head of a pyramid. And there was Zacchaeus at the top, and then there were other tax collectors at a level below, and other tax collectors at a level below them. 
So Zacchaeus not only profited from his own dishonesty, but from the dishonesty of all these tax collectors that were in this pyramid structure before him. And therefore, as a result, he was exceedingly rich. And someone once put it like this, that when money changes hands, whether it is across a grubby table in a tin shack, or whether it is as a result of a computer on the 75th floor of a Wall, Wall Street skyscraper, hands can get dirty. And undoubtedly, Zacchaeus's hands were dirty. His home would probably have been lavishly decorated with stuff that he had got at the expense of the extortion that he was involved in with other people. And what motivated him to climb the tree, as we've already asked, we're not quite told. But it is clear that Zacchaeus, at that particular time, fortunately, had a disturbance within his spirit. I tend to feel that that phrase, which I take no credit for making up, is a very interesting and a very good phrase. He was disturbed within his spirit. I remember when I was at college, uh, on one occasion I was sitting in my room and I lifted down a book entitled Preaching and Preachers. It was by a very famous London minister who, uh, well, would have been, uh, I heard him preach once, but he's dead quite a number of years. But his name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in this particular book, there was a chapter entitled The Call to be a preacher. And I remember at that particular time as I was sitting in my study asking myself the question, are you called into the ministry? And then I asked another question, how do you know that you're called into the ministry? And as I read this particular chapter, it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who used this phrase, that a call generally starts in the form of a consciousness, a disturbance within your spirit. In other words, you haven't sat down and thought, about, should I do this or should I do that? But there's this inner conviction, this compulsion that you have to start considering certain things that have been implanted in your spirit, in your mind, in your consciousness by God. And I think it would be true to say that as far as Zacchaeus was concerned, when he climbed up the tree, unbeknown to him what the train of events would follow, Nevertheless, there was some disturbance within his spirit. He was being called, even though we may not know it, that knew it at that time, he was being called to uh, follow a course of events that would ultimately lead to Jesus going to his house and him responding to the message of Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus would have been aware of what other people thought about him. He would have known that the life that he lived was totally and completely and utterly dishonorable. And yet we discover that this compulsion that he had to do what he ha did was something that was probably outside his own consideration at that particular time, over and against the fact that he just simply wanted to look down from the vantage point of a tree and see Jesus. There was a disturbance within his spirit. And you know, it's good for us, all of us at times, to pause and to search our lives and to ask questions about ourselves. For example, as a Christian, how do I come across to other people? 
does my lifestyle complement or does it contradict my profession? Do I encourage others in the Christian life, in the church fellowship, in the family, or do I distress them? Where am I in relation to God's will for my life? And you know, these are important questions for us as Christians at times to ask, because the reputation that we have can be a plus, a negative, or a positive in respect of our Christian witness, our Christian witness even within the church. How do people view you as a leader in the church, as a communicant in the church, as someone who's involved in some aspect of the life and work of the church? Are you one of these people who's a constant gurn that nothing's ever right? Or are you one who seeks to encourage and to build people up? I, I have two uh, grandchildren, which I, uh, me and my wife look after on a Friday, and I go to collect them from school. And I usually take her car, and there's a, there's a little disc that's in, in the car, a little, ch the little children's song, and it's about, about building you up. Uh, and it, it asks the question, do you build people up or do you pull them down? And so often, within even the church, we can pull people down rather than build them up through encouragement. Could there be, at times, a disturbance within your spirit that makes you ask yourself the question, am I living as a Christian in the way that I should? Jesus had an, or Zacchaeus had an encounter that led to a disturbance within his spirit. But then there was not only Zacchaeus' encounter, but there was Zacchaeus' repentance. We're not told what Jesus said to Zacchaeus very much. Sufficient to say that repentance emerged from the lips of Zacchaeus in the most dramatic form. Jesus was a guest in his home. Now, to be a guest in those particular days was not simply calling in for an afternoon cup of tea. To be a guest normally meant that you went to somebody's house and you spent the night there. So Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus was not just uh, a quick, uh, hello, how are you? Uh, it was a time where they obviously were together and where Jesus was teaching, where Jesus was encouraging, and where uh, Zacchaeus was responding. And Zacchaeus' repentance, his sorrow, was as lavish as his hospitality. His repentance was not just a change of mind. We discover that, when you read the story, that his repentance involved restoration. His lifestyle was visibly transformed. Uh, for example, he had a declaration of intent. What did he say? Half of my goods... I will give to the poor. That was a, a plan that he had in his, his mind. And then he went on, and if I have extorted from anybody more than I should have, I will repay it fourfold. So he recognized that much of his life had been spent defrauding other people. But now he was prepared to, to repent 
and to, to change. What is repentance? A number of years ago, I went into a, a Christian bookshop in Belfast. And uh, as I made my way in through the door, there was only a couple of people sort of near the counter at the front. But as I looked back, it was a long, narrow sort of bookshop. As I looked back, I saw half a dozen, uh, well, young guys, probably in their early 20s. I must confess that my immediate thought was, what are these boys doing in here? Uh, are they in to cause a bit of trouble? And uh, as I was passing the, the owner of the bookshop or the manager, I said, uh, there's some interesting characters in here today. Oh, he said, yes, uh, those boys come in, uh, well, when they're from England, and, and they come over here uh, on a couple of occasions each year and they conduct uh, missions and uh, then I soon realized and even by looking at them I came to this conclusion that they were members of the traveling community and so I, I went on up to the end of the shop where they were because I was looking for a particular book and uh, they, they were looking through books and things and one of them said to me have you any books that you could recommend and uh, we were standing beside uh, the section where there was a lot of little pamphlets and things, and the Shorter Catechism was sitting. And I said, you know, there's a, a very interesting wee book, and look, it's only 50p. Um, and, you know, you might find that quite interesting. It, it answers questions about that people are sometimes asking about phrases in the Bible, and, uh, and it's quite a helpful little booklet. And, and he lifted it, and he opened it up. And his eye fell on the question, what is sin? And immediately he read the answer. He turned to the other boys and he said, look, he said, this is a great wee book. There is the best definition of sin that I've ever read. And he grabbed a handful of these and he issued everybody with one and they had to go and buy it along with any other books. And I'm sure the manager of the bookshop felt could have not have... Uh, uh, recommended a book at 15 pounds rather than 50p. But nevertheless, what does the Shorter Catechism say about repentance? It says repentance is a saving grace, whereby the sinner out of a true sense of his sin does with grief and hatred turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after a new obedience. We have to turn from what is wrong and we have to start afresh. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. It's as sure as the nose is on your face that here he was, what he was doing was wrong, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and suddenly he turns his back on what he had been doing and he focuses in an entirely different direction and he's prepared to make restoration and that was all part of his repentance. There was Zacchaeus' encounter and there was Zacchaeus' repentance. Then let's thirdly look at Zacchaeus' legacy. If I had been preaching this evening on Matthew the tax collector who authored one of the Gospels I might have 
had these as my headings. Matthew's despised occupation. His gracious call. His generous feast, because he held a feast in some ways, in the same way that uh, Zacchaeus did, and then his literary ability, that he was able to, to write a book. There's no evidence that Zacchaeus gave up being a tax collector. When Matthew was called by Jesus Christ to be a disciple, we told that he forsook being a tax collector and he went in an entirely different direction. He became a full-time disciple. But as far as Zacchaeus is concerned, we don't read that he did that. In fact, there was no reason why he should have done it. Because you remember, when John the Baptist was preaching, he was preaching to all the different categories of people and were told that the tax collectors went out to hear him preach. And they asked John the Baptist, what should we do? And the answer that he, that he gave them was not, you should leave becoming a tax collector. He didn't say that. He said, you should collect no more than you're authorized to collect and you should be content with your wages. We don't read about Zacchaeus ever again in the scriptures. But yet, is it not true to say that Zacchaeus, through that encounter that he had and the record that we have of that encounter, we see that Zacchaeus has gone down in history as one of the heroes of his generation. And even 2,000 years later, we're talking about him here in Markerfeld this evening. Now, there's no mention of those who were the critics of Zacchaeus, who went to the house and who were squabbling about the fact that Jesus had gone to speak with sinners and with a tax collector. We don't know anything about them. We hear nothing more about them. We don't even know who they were called. But here Zacchaeus, we see, is someone who has gone down in the pages of Scripture. He has le left a legacy that is an encouragement to all of us this evening. The question we need to ask ourselves too tonight is surely the question, what sort of a legacy am I leaving? Now, I'm not talking about a legacy that you formulate in some solicitor's office, but I'm speaking now about a spiritual legacy. What legacy are you leaving? in the way that Zacchaeus left a legacy. And surely, as we read this particular story, and as we go back to that verse that I quoted about all Scripture being God-breathed and profitable, we can learn a great deal from Zacchaeus and the legacy that he left. Simply by the change that he exhibited in his life, it was all obviously seen by those who were around him on that particular day. There would be those who had extorted, would have been the recipients now of his repentance through what he was giving back to them. And he certainly left a great legacy. And he left a legacy of communicating how we even today should live and how we should respond to the love of God through repentance. None of us, because it can no longer happen, will have our names inscribed indelibly on the pages of Scripture. But we can leave a legacy. A, a, a legacy, I'm speaking now, of Christian service that is owned by the Spirit of God and that is used effectively in the future. 
was telling some of the folks at the back, when I retired, uh, I said that uh, I would go out preaching on a Sunday, but I didn't want to be linked to any congregation. I go to a congregation and belong to a congregation, but I didn't want to go to a congregation and be involved in, in sort of minister's work and pastoral visitation, which some retired ministers do. But however, as time went on, I got a phone call from a particular congregation, and uh, it was my own home congregation where I'd been brought up. And I was asked to do a couple of afternoons pastoral work uh, in, 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 a week, in the week. It was the first time in Presbyterian Church. So uh, because I was going to see people that I knew and people I'd grown up with, and I thought, well, maybe I should. I got a lot out of the church, and if I can give something back, that would be a good thing to do. And about every month, uh, there are a couple of young guys in the church who are... Uh, I think they call them interns. They, they, they go to um, uh, uh, one of these places where, they're, where they're, the, the, they're out of work for a year, deliberately stepped out of work for a year, and uh, they're, uh, they're learning about the Bible and about becoming uh, preachers, etc., etc. And probably uh, in the future, they, they'll go into the church. But every month, we, we have decided together that we're looking at a book. And it's a book written by uh, Rico Tice, who was the author and exponent of the Christianity Explored uh, course, which has been so valuable in so many people's lives. And as, as we've looked at this book, we have been learning together about why we should evangelize, why we should reach out with the gospel, why we should leave that legacy, if I could put it like that. And there's three reasons that Rico Teich gave, and I'm going to give them, and then I'm going to finish. Uh, the first one is the glory of Jesus. The second one is the guarantee of a new creation. And the third one is the grim reality of death and hell. At the transfiguration, Jesus showed his glory on the hilltop to Peter, James, and John. And in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, we pray that God's glory would be seen through the lives that we live. The vision of John in the island of Patmos was where he saw God's glory and he had the great vision of the, of the book of the Revelation. And you know, those of us who are Christians and have responded to the gospel, just as Zacchaeus had done, we can leave a legacy of displaying the glory of God through the lives that we live. In the first congregation that I ministered in, there was an old man. He was an elder. And when I went there, he was probably in his mid-80s. And... Uh, he had been a gardener in one of these big estates for the whole of his life. And he'd worked on his own probably most of his life. And he took sick and he went into hospital. He was rarely sick, but he, he went into hospital. And I went to visit him in the hospital. And he said to me, he said, you know, I can't stand being in here. I said, what's wrong with you? They're not making you better. He said, yes, they're doing their best to make me better. But he said, I can't stand the atmosphere of this particular ward. 
There are people in here and they're cursing and swearing and they're bringing the name of the Lord into disrepute through the things that that they're saying. You see, he had been cocooned in some way as all his life. He had been, as it were, taken out of of real society as you and I would know it because he'd worked on his own for years and, and he'd just been involved in the church and in Christian things. And when he met up with people who were who were not Christians and who were defaming the, defaming the name of, of God, then he was really hurt. He felt that God's glory was being sacrificed. And so we should seek to live our Christian lives wanting to bring glory to God. We should live them in such a way that we know that there will be a new creation. Where will we be in a hundred years' time? I'm thinking if the world continues, uh, there's a downward spiral at the moment, and it's escalating uh, over the past even number of years at a rate that our forefathers would never have considered. And if the world goes on for another hundred years, what's it going to be like? Equally, the other side of the coin is there are so many people at the minute and they're very concerned that somebody's going to press a nuclear button and blow us all out of the the sea. But our future as Christians is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, are we certain about eternity? Are we excited about our eternity? Are we taking on board what we read in the book of the Revelation that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where those who are the children of God will reign and be there forever and ever in the presence of the Lord. Where we're told that there's no sea. In the, in the Jewish thought, the sea represented chaos and represent, uh, represented uh, separation and judgment. They said, look what happened in Noah's day where the sea covered the earth and God's judgment came. But there will be no sea in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no chaos or concern or crying or illness or goodbyes or death or tyranny. But also we should be concerned as we go out to witness, not only for the glory of Jesus, not only for the guarantee that we have as Christians of the new creation, but the reality of hell, of separation from God. People today laugh at the very thought that hell exists but it is a place that is final and fixed where there's no commuting between hell and heaven and where we are separated from God in all eternity. And Rico Tice in his his little book talked about one night that a friend of his took a tape that he had preached and gave it to, or a CD, and gave it to another, another friend of Rico's. And the other friend was heard to say, if that is what Rico Tice believes, the fact that he has said nothing of it to me means that he's not really my friend. And so often, as Christians, we're called to to step into the the area of life that maybe we don't want to offend people, we don't want to upset them, but we want surely to promote the glory of God We want to see our friends in the new heaven and in the new earth. And this maybe comes through the warning to those who do not respond to the grace of God. What is your legacy? A legacy that you've responded, but a legacy that you want to continue to make sure that those around you 
who you've been entrusted with to, to, to promote the gospel, that you're faithful in doing it. We see uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had an encounter which led to his repentance, which led to a legacy that we have today and that we're expected to promote through our encounter and our repentance. Let us pray. Thank you.